You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. Hi, everybody. My name is Natalie Yeadon. I'm the co-owner and CEO with Impetus Digital. At Impetus, we built some of the best-in-class asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools so that life science companies from across the globe can work with payers, patients, allied healthcare providers, all sorts of other people in virtual advisory boards, working groups, medical education events, and even set up their own hackathons and small corporate events using the Impetus Insight platform. But more importantly, at Impetus, we really believe that everything important starts with a conversation. And with these big, hairy, audacious conversations that we have with some of the leading edge thinkers, provocateurs, digital entrepreneurs, we can all work to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. But it doesn't only stop there. We can't just have a conversation. We need to sustain those conversations. This is actually precisely the reason that we've created the platform for a series of asynchronous and synchronous touch points over time so that we can work with people, the various stakeholders that have an interest in what you're doing to move ideas, strategies, tactics, protocols, policies, and to move all of these things forward. And this is exactly what we do at Impetus. So I'm really happy to have a couple of these really leading edge thinkers who are doing some really cool things in the field today. So let me start off with Peter Wood. Peter is actually a research associate at the University of Alberta where he's working on technology-assisted care and blood pressure measurement. He has a master's degree in experimental medicine, also from the University of Alberta, and focusing on echocardiography and left ventricular volume assessment. Prior to his graduate studies, Peter worked as a senior cardiac physiologist at Oxford University Hospital in the UK. So along with Dr. Raj Padwell and Dr. Jennifer Ringrose, he is the co-founder of Millimeter Mercury Incorporated. So it's it's a little interesting spelling. So check it out if you're, uh, I like the way they've done it. As well as their COO, where he focuses on creating low cost and widely scalable digital health solutions. Uh, We also have at the table today, Dr. Raj Padwell. He is actually a general internal medicine specialist, a clinical pharmacologist, clinical epidemiologist, and a health services researcher. So so if that wasn't enough, with an interest in hypertension, blood pressure measurement, obesity, and cardiovascular risk reduction. Dr. Raj Padwell is a professor of medicine at the University of Alberta, 
and the director of the University of Alberta Hypertension and Dyslipidemia Clinic. His major research focus includes technology-assisted care in hypertension and various other aspects of intermittent and continuous blood pressure measurement. He is also the past chair of the Canadian Hypertension Recommendations and the member of several national and international blood pressure guideline committees. He is also the co-founder and the CEO of the company that we're gonna be speaking up about today, which is Mill, um, Millimeters Mercury Incorporated. So welcome Raj and Peter, so happy to have you on the show today. That's great, pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So both of you very, very deep in the whole cardiovascular ecosystem. Maybe I'm gonna start with you, Peter, and then uh, Raj, if you can speak up. Really interesting career trajectories for those people who are interested in finding out a little bit about this. How did you land up where you are today, Peter? And same thing with you, Raj. So we'll start with you, Peter. Uh, yeah, I definitely didn't take uh, a straightforward um, path to where, I, where I've arrived. Uh, so I actually started ex studied exercise science and physiology at the University of Queensland in Australia. Uh, and <clears throat> after I'd finished there, I decided I wanted to travel around a bit. And my degree allowed me the uh, qualification of cardiac physiologist. Um, so lucky for me, there was a lot of locum positions available in England. So I traveled around for about a year, jumping between jobs, uh, living in the UK and traveling around Europe. And then I was lucky enough to find uh, a secure position uh, at uh, University Oxford Hospital um, Trust. Uh, as a senior cardiac physiologist, and I stayed there for about four years. I was fortunate enough to meet a professor of cardiology there uh, who was actually offered to open his own lab at the University of Alberta at the Mazankowski Heart Institute, and he invited me to come and do my graduate studies with him. Uh, so after I finished there, I uh, sort of was wondering what I should be doing. I, I actually entered a PhD program, but decided I wasn't really ready for it at the time. And then I started managing a technology lab uh, in the Department of Computing Science. Uh, they needed some of the medicine background uh, to help sort of communicate the technology that they were developing. <clears throat> and uh, from that lab, I actually met Raj at a uh, grant meeting. And I guess, as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> And how about you, Raj? Tell us about the very interesting trajectory that you've done all things hypertension and blood pressure. Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I, I didn't uh, travel as far as uh, Peter has through his life, but um, mostly stuck around in Canada and I've done training in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario. Um, and basically, you know, as a general internist, we like to do a lot of different things. So I do a lot of hospital-based medicine, unfortunately, a lot of COVID stuff right now. Um, but I've also been uh, primarily focused on academic research, um, the usual stuff, CHR funding, writing papers, supervising, speaking. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of realized about three, four years ago that the research way of doing things isn't as impactful as it as it really can be. And part of that is, I think, the way that research funding is set up. Um, and part of it is who gets funded and how they get funded. And really, CIHR type stuff is riskless. You know, they really kind of want you to do the study before you actually uh, get the funding. 
Um, so I, I actually looked at entrepreneurial and commercialization work as first an extension of my research and then as a replacement. And I, I met Peter at a CIHR meeting, uh, ironically. Uh, we started talking, um, we got another CIHR grant uh, collaborating together. Um, but then we realized, you know, the, the better way to go is through uh, commercialization research in terms of having big impact on patients' lives and users' lives. And so I've had this journey through medicine and ended up still in medicine. And I'll never stop practicing until I fully retire, but it's going to be a while. Um, but um, we, we decided to make evidence-infused medical solutions. And uh, so Millimuse Mercury was born out of that. And we're, we're, we're really excited about, about the future. Brilliant. I, I love that. And I also really appreciate your passion for remaining in medicine and remaining at the helm, if you will, of what patients need and that you're going to be able to continue to filter those needs and challenges into the entrepreneurial work that you're doing at Millimeters Mercury. So let's actually just start with that as a company, the fact that you decided that you were going to do sort of more commercialized research and you found that this was a, a faster go-to market strategy. What is really the inspiration behind the company and what exactly does Millimeters Mercury actually do? Well, the inspiration was a conversation with Peter. Uh, I had no idea that there was a whole other avenue of funding. Um, it's the Canadian National Research Council IRAP program. And um, at first, I, I wasn't at all focused on a company and revenues and employees and, and uh, all the rest. Um, it was really about, oh, can I do research in a different way? Um, and then we pitched to IRAP, and luckily, they took a chance on us and gave us uh, our first uh, small grant. And, um, and really, the vision for Millimeters Mercury, we, we actually started off in hardware, but hardware is a really tough sell in Canada because of all the global competition, manufacturers and others. And, and what we noticed was what was really resonating with people is our software solutions. And the reason was because they're simple, they're elegant, they're evidence infused, which is a very big rarity in the market. And they're cost efficient, which is, again, another rarity in the market. And we've really focused on conditions, especially hypertension, that are just terribly controlled across the world. And our vision is to try to bring scalable solutions everywhere. Um, so th that's really why, I mean, we ended up starting the company as an extension of research, and then it just kept gaining traction and people, it kept resonating with people. And, uh, and then ultimately, you know, it's become its own uh, entity in and of itself. And uh, like I say, we we're pretty excited about where we are right now and, and even more excited about where we're going. Peter, how about yourself? Tell us your thoughts. You were the one who kind of came up, hey, we've got maybe this other possibility. What, what kind of brought you into that entrepreneurial space? And what was sort of your co-created vision for what you wanted to do with Millimeters Mercury? Yeah, so I had a little bit of experience um, with startup companies before I met Raj. Uh, so the uh, lab I was working with uh, in computing science at the University of Alberta, we had decided to start a company uh, to launch some of the projects that we developed there. Um, I think those products, uh, I think one of them is still sort of on that path. 
uh, and another was sort of fairly um, it wasn't it wasn't a great fit for the market without a lot of capital. Uh, and so after working with Raj and, and sort of, you know, we had close ties and I was, I was very aware of the funding opportunities through that previous, uh, those previous uh, startup opportunities. Um, after sort of discussing it, we realized that, you know, there really wasn't any risk in giving it a go and, and seeing where it would lead. And, um, you know, five to six years later, here we are. <laughs> So we're going to speak to the audience a little bit about what all of this is. So you've actually coined the phrase of, of this. You really started off with something called this Figmo blood pressure and glucose monitoring telemonitoring system. Now, what's interesting about us just starting with this conversation is this was the premise behind your startup even before COVID, before telemedicine, before it became really popular. So if you can dig in a little bit to what that is as, as a core component or um, you know, an element, if you will, of the success of millimeters mercury and what the world looked like at, when you started, kind of what happened, I guess, in the last three or four years and what has changed since COVID-19. So maybe we'll start with you, Raj. Sure, um, I'll just add, based on Peter's comment, I'm not sure our wives would agree that we took no risk there, Peter, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we have, we, so we have three verticals in our company. We have the Sigmo system, which is an RPM, remote patient monitoring, vitals tracking, um, sharing with providers type system. Uh, we have now just launched cloud-based ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. 24-hour ambulatory monitoring is the gold standard for diagnosis of high blood pressure. No one else has such a platform. And then we do medical software for companies and we white label for companies across the world and um, researchers. Uh, so back to remote patient monitoring. Yeah, you're right. You know, we, we always saw the need and we weren't alone. I mean, you know, there's big, huge American companies, especially operating in that commercialized uh, insured part of the American uh, healthcare system. And th those companies tend to be on the vanguard. So, you know, the Livongos and uh, Larks and uh, those kinds of companies uh, of, the, of the world. Um, but the problem is, is that it's really only the solutions are only available to a select few, the, the wealthier um, end of the U.S. population or the commercially insured. So good jobs, good incomes. And that was not our vision. So we, we wanted to bring this to, to everywhere else. And uh, what COVID's done is just accelerated everyone's interest in it. And frankly, you would think that after COVID or during COVID, solutions like ours would have been mass adopted everywhere. And that's not really the truth. I mean, I think there's big adoption happening in the US and there's lots of companies like ours now, um, before not so many, but lots now. They do things in a different way. We, we tend to focus on uh, some key differentiators, which I can explain in a minute. Um, but, but overall, the rest of the world is still lagging massively. And so we think over the next five, 10 years, you know, this is going to be taken up in the rest of the U.S. and elsewhere. Now, the key differentiator here is cost. So um, a lot of what these companies do right now is super, super expensive. And it's, it's the, the, the growth of it is fueled by really lucrative fee codes specific to the U.S., but never going to be instituted anywhere else. 
And our focus is, okay, let's make it smartphone-based, 80% penetration of smartphones in developed countries. It's over 50% in in, uh, emerging economy companies and countries, sorry. And so it's going to be ubiquitous in 10 years, smartphone use. Everyone has a computer in their hand. Let's take advantage of that computer and not add unnecessary costs like bringing kits or devices to people um, that you know are, are marked up by a thousand percent, for example. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is multiple languages, multiple platforms. So iOS and Android, both at the same time um, and, uh, and really device agnostic. So that's another thing. Give people, let them bring their own devices. Don't prescribe to them which device, like make it your device. Maybe a lot of companies are selling non-validated, clinically validated devices as well. So best practice, uh, push people to do the best possible evidence-based uh, care they can give and do it in a way that's very low cost, very scalable, takes advantage of existing equipment. Uh, over 50% of people own uh, in Canada own a home blood pressure monitor if they have high blood pressure. So don't unnecessary escalate costs. So that, so that was really our vision with the RPM platform. And I think now we're resonating mostly in the US, but um, things are slow in terms of a global adoption of RPM, but it's gonna come. I love it. Peter, let's actually just uh, double click on the RPM system a little bit more. When we talk about some of these patient reported outcomes or these new devices, we hear a lot about wearable technologies, things that measure things like blood pressure, heart rate. What is your system doing and how, how are patients getting involved with the, uh, the, the interface and the the evaluation of this information. So what does it collect and where does it go? Yeah, I think that's an important point. There are a lot of uh, wearables and sensors sort of um, being pushed through the market now. But I think the important thing to start off with is that all the technologies that the MMHC platform pairs with are clinically validated. So we only work with clinically validated accurate devices and devices that physicians and guideline committees recommend the patients use. So as Raj mentioned, we're device agnostic um, and particularly in the US, there's a big impetus on using uh, wirelessly transmitted information. So uh, we have a a patient facing smartphone app that connects with a variety of different peripherals, 28 different blood pressure monitors at the moment, three different glucometers, et cetera. Uh, So we let the patient choose that devices connected through the uh, app, we actually uh, protocolize the way, for example, that patients measure their blood pressure. So the guidelines in uh, Canada, the US, and really across the world are very particular about how they believe patients should be measuring their blood pressure and also how clinicians should be uh, using the information. And so uh, we, in our app, we teach patients, we have an infograph that teaches patients how to perform their blood pressure measurement accurately. And we also encourage two readings to be performed at a time separated by one minute, again, as per the guidelines. Uh, And then the the patient should perform their measurements for a week. And then we actually have summarization tools that facilitates a guideline, uh, an efficient guideline concordant summarization of that data so that the clinicians can very quickly and effectively manage the patient. So guideline concordant infusion um, of protocols in our applications is very, very important for the way that we want uh, our platform to be used. I, I really like it. I think um, 
there's a lot of really interesting meat in there, if you will. So when you think about the word concordance and we think about um, protocols, it you know, really rings true to a lot of physicians who are really concerned around all the things that are available. So it, you actually have created sort of a super niche. But at the same time, it may be big words and big concepts to just a general patient. So when you talk about you know, training them or you're talking about demarcation of a certain way to measure their blood pressure, are you targeting a certain level or social economic status or understanding of patients who may understand that as opposed to something that just continuously streams their data and summarizes it in the back end with some smart algorithms and then serves it up to the physician? Raj, what do you have to say about that in comparison to other technologies like Apple smartwatch or the Aura Ring or other things that are just doing continuous monitoring and then serving up um, uh, edited or finalized data up to physicians instead of having patients understand certain protocols and methodologies? Yeah, such a great question. So, so many solutions out there. And even, um, even beyond the, the watch type solutions, there are a lot of companies like ours, but they don't necessarily or they don't really pay any attention to best clinical practice. Um, I think the best way to do it is to just make sure it's the default for the software so that people who are using the software they don't even have to think about it. And it's no more extra work for them. It, you can't make it onerous on people because if you do, then it's just simply not going to be used. So when Pete mentions a pictograph, it's really all about a simple, elegant, quick measurement uh, done through an app uh, that is sort of pictorially and textually summarized for the patient but in a way that they can simply rapidly understand it and do it properly. And a timer that counts down to remind them to do back-to-back -back readings. And then we have alerts programmed if necessary to remind the patient to do it for a week. Um, so it's not, you know, earth shatteringly complicated stuff, but on the other hand, you need clinical knowledge to, to prescribe it properly and infuse the software properly. Um, and, and so that's what we do. And a lot of companies, the majority, vast majority don't. Um, and then I think I would also make the point of this great divide. So you have all of this data, for example, for blood pressure, you know, literally 50 years of data accumulated in millions of patients. Now, does an individual user want to know all of that? No. But do you want an expertly crafted product that infuses the knowledge generated from all of those studies as a default, that's what we do. And, and that's why, you know, just, just like the elegance of a, of an iPhone, we don't think twice about it. I think they came out in 2008, not that long ago. Now it's, they're everywhere, smartphones. And we don't even think twice about, you know, the swiping and all the uh, different innovations involved. So that's kind of in a smaller scale, what we're aimed at with all our platforms is make it elegant, make it simple, walk people through the best way to practice, but make it the default. Um, Raj, so interestingly put. And so my question to you, Peter, is a huge component of what Raj was just alluding to is really the component of around interoperability. People are ultimately trying to conserve energy, minds, share, et cetera, our brains are lazy. We like to get an automatic pilot and do the things that feel comfortable and that are easy to do. 
So workflow and getting things integrated into what you're already doing, electronic health records, the protocols, the, the guidelines that you already follow and integrate them. Can you tell us a little bit about what work you have done, at least in Canada, maybe you're considering other markets on how to make sure your system is integrated so it becomes the default? Yeah, absolutely. So integration um, is a huge focus of ours because we recognize that you know, no provider wants to open yet another screen in order to do their work. However, you still need to use the guideline concordant tools and, and be, you know, implementing best practice. And that's what we develop with our solutions. So the best strategy for integration really is to have sort of an iframe solution where the where our platform can sort of pop up mm -hmm. uh, in the in the port, you know, sort of acts like a button in the EMR and it sort of pops up. And that works really well for web-based solutions. Um, some of the older EMRs, um, I think you can't have quite a good uh, integration strategy as that would entail. So you, you, you unfortunately have to apply different integration methodology depending on the EMR you're working with. And most importantly is that you need to have the EMR vendor as part of the equation. Uh, you can't just sort of walk in and just say you're going to integrate and just start doing it. You always need to have that partnership on the other side to, to make it work. Um, so we are doing that with, uh, for example, a company called Okaki. Uh, they're an EMR provider here in uh, Alberta and uh, more broadly across Canada. And we are, we are integrating with them for a First Nations um, pilot project, which we hope to extend uh, nationwide. Uh, where our where our uh, clinical util, util, utility is being uh, embedded into their platform as an EMR, um, and then you know we are doing similar work in the US uh, where we're implementing our strategies in a in a similar fashion. Raj, I'm also just curious about the kind of physician who is best to utilize this tool. COVID nineteen is here. Hybrid care is going to be the way of the future. We're going to be now making very patient-centric options where patients can decide to go in or not, or it's a combination of, of all of that. And so remote monitoring, remote diagnoses is going to become just the new normal. So where does this tool fit into that realm? And with what physician type? Is it primary care physicians? Is it specialists? What, are the, what is this tool going to do? And what is this going to do in, in collaboration or in conjunction with the Bluetooth you know, managed stethoscope and all these other new tricorders and other sorts of measuring and monitoring diagnosis tools? Where does it fit in that ecosystem and with what type of physician? Yeah, I would say that the best place to place it is with in the hands of a non-physician, frankly. Um, so you know, physicians are busy, they're, they're a scarce resource. Um, when you're looking at a tool like Sphygmo, you really want to employ it on a clinic or a um, uh, organization-wide level. So, so I mean, the, just to directly answer your question, the type of physician that would, or the type of clinical practice that would be interested in such a solution would be primary care. They're doing a lot of blood pressure monitoring and specialty care like internal medicine, cardiology, nephrology, or kidneys, and obstetrics as well. Um, so those would be kind of the major clinical focuses in terms of use cases. But 
I will say to you that um, what the platform creates ultimately is a roster of patients and their metrics. And you can sort, filter, um, uh, there's alerts you can, uh, you can prioritize. And the best person to do that kind of work is not a physician. A, there's too few of them. B, they're not so great always following protocols. <laughs> Just not, that, not as good as nurses, not as good as clinical pharmacists. So really, I think a case manager, which in the literature is typically a nurse or a clinical pharmacist, some strong data for clinical pharmacists, especially, that, that's who should be managing these patients, um, looking at the roster every day or every week, making sure that the patients that are really need a physician's attention are driven over to the physician. Um, that's the way I would use the platform. And so multidisciplinary care, really. And then the other comment I would make is, the foundational platforms that Millimeters Mercury have made really are initially for better clinical care, and the tools are for providers. But our next stage of our build-out is going to be tools focused on the user. And we really believe in the next 5-10 years, users need to be empowered to take control and be given the tools to look after their own care. And the example I'd give to you is many regions of the world where there's no access to a physician and there may not be access to even a healthcare provider. The most that someone could access might be a community health worker. And so there's no reason why you can't instill or distill all the decades of evidence in a usable manner for a user so that they can understand, okay, I might have high blood pressure here, do I? And if I do, okay, what is, what do I need? You know, what are the things non-pharmacologically, non-drug therapies that could eliminate or reduce this problem? And then what, given my traits, given my history, what are the drugs that I need to be on? This is protocolized care. This has been being done for many years, but not in the form of an autonomous system. And we're creating such a system as, as are others. And I think that's really the wave of the future is get that smartphone in someone's hand their health, they're the quarterback of their health. If they need to call a provider in because they need a prescription or an opinion or confirmation, great, but put in their hands and in their minds the knowledge required to manage their condition and diagnose it as well. So, so eloquently put, and I think what's really interesting here, Raj, with COVID-19 is it's, we've been put into this accelerated experiment, if you will, a giant pilot project. So I'm just kind of curious, Peter, with all of that said, and exactly what Raj is saying in the build out of this idea of centralizing care in the hands of the individual, of the health consumer. What has COVID taught us about that in light of this world of a myriad of multiple realities, multiple versions of the truth, believing in science or not, and also a general population that feels that they, they have to follow a leader. And then there's mass confusion, for example, on all of the different protocols and prototypes and guidelines around this vaccine, take this, don't do this. Are people ready, the general public, are they ready to take their health into their own hands? Uh, I think that's a loaded question, um, but I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think, I think what COVID has shown is can, can remote care be delivered and maintain um, efficacy uh, and appropriate, you know, patient management? I think the answer is yes. I think 
you know, you can do, you can perform protocolized um, appropriate diagnosis of patients in their home and it's cheaper. It's easier for the patient. It's more time efficient for the provider. It's cheaper on the system overall. So I think, I think it's a, the answer is a big resounding yes. It absolutely can be done. And I think people are ready for it because I don't, I think once COVID starts to wrap up and hopefully that's, you know, happening now, um, I don't think, I think, I think, you know, providers and patients will return to care, care as was pre-COVID, you know, to a certain extent, but I don't think virtual care is going to backpedal I think it's here to stay and I think it's going to continue to grow and become a more important part of the way that we manage patients. And I will add just, sorry, I just want to just add one thing to that, to your question. COVID is new and it's mass confusion because we have no, we, you know, at the beginning, we had no clue. I mean, you know, I, I was one of many on the front lines of COVID and you didn't really know if you would go to work and then you'd come home and you'd spread it to your family or contract it. And you didn't really know if you contracted it, if you would actually make it. And that's a very different feeling from the usual practice of medicine that in this day and age providers are used to. Um, so that was you know, just a, a microcosm of the unknowns of COVID. Um, and then so you have on the user or consumer or patient end, so many more unknowns because you're getting all this divergent opinion. Um, but I would point out to you for what we're doing at Millimeters Mercury with our initial focus on cardiovascular health is that stuff's not new. That stuff's been known for 60 years, more even. And when you look at, okay, how to reduce blood pressure naturally, salt, sodium reduction, salt reduction, you know, exercise, maintain a healthy body weight, don't drink excessive alcohol. You know, a lot, a lot of people want to hear this, but this is not rocket science, but how do you get people to operationalize it? That's what we're trying to work on through um, better messaging and better counseling through an autonomous system. Um, and then the protocolized care for medications, again, lots, millions of patients uh, participated in these trials, which were many of which were publicly funded or privately funded. And so we have this knowledge, we've got to use the knowledge. And there's this massive knowledge gap, even amongst providers, let alone patients. So don't need to give them a, the original reference, but definitely can put into their hands the, the last 60 years of evidence, which for COVID we didn't have, but for this example, we definitely have. Peter, we've been talking about some various examples of lots of different kinds of uh, remote um, tools, sensors, monitors, wearables. We've been also seeing a lot more 501k approvals of software as medical devices. Where does this product fit and what clinical trials have you done or would you consider doing to measure against standard of care or best of best practice? And what are you measuring against? Yeah, so at the moment, um, so we are very careful about how, where our product sits at the moment. Really at the moment, we are a data collector and, uh, and visualizer. So we don't, we definitely don't sit as like a 510k requirement um you know in going through that process and and all the rest of it um we are we don't have any specific clinical trials right this second but we are in the process of them being performed with our academic partnerships so one trial was completed on the east coast uh, a few months ago so we're waiting to see what the write-up of that will be 
And we have several other academic partners that we're working with uh, as well to sort of see how our product can improve the outcomes of patients. However, the way that our product works is a remote telemonitoring platform, specifically for blood pressure and glucose. This is based on uh, decades of evidence that already exists. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel as far as you know, remote patient monitoring. We're just trying to provide as effective tool as possible um, for the patient and the providers to make sure best practice and, and best care is delivered. So Raj, we're talking here that you're sort of a very elegant, almost like data visualizer, almost like a tableau or a dashboard. What is the business model for millimeters mercury? Who's, who cares and who's paying for this? Yeah, great, great question. So um, I wanna differentiate between the current stage of our platform and the next stage. So the next stage of our platform, probably released next year, will do the digital therapeutics and we will need the FDA approvals, et cetera. But uh, our current version um, is, is not, is just, is, doesn't require those kinds of sophisticated approvals. Um, so cur speaking currently, uh, there's two major ways we, we derive revenue. The first would be to white label. So we're very keen on partnerships and if an entity, for example, like a major partner is A&D Medical, A&D is a multinational, a publicly traded Japanese company headquartered in Tokyo. They make precision devices, including one of the largest blood pressure device makers in the world. They've white labeled our systems and it's known as HeartTrack. So we derive revenue from the white labeling process and working with our partners to expand use of the platforms across uh, the US, Canada and, and elsewhere. Um, but we're interested in more white labeling. And there are many companies out there, we think, distributors of BP monitors, makers of BP monitors that would be interested in our solution because we're very, we're, we have a great deal of clinical and software expertise. And these companies can spend three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to make an app, just an app, not a telemonitoring platform. And then they find out, oh, there's ongoing development costs, but they don't pay for them. And as a result, their app tends to, over time, not work or not work well. The Bluetooth connectivity, which we're at experts at, fails. And then they get terrible ratings and no one wants to use it. So we would say to those companies, outsource to us for a much smaller fee, and we will develop and maintain or white label and maintain because we're always maintaining our core, core platform anyway, which is what you get. So that's the first way we make money on the RPM platform. And then the second way is in the US, there's billing codes. And so with those billing codes, uh, we can take a small price per patient. We, we keep costs really low. We're, we're, I think, extremely competitive, if not maybe even the lowest in the market. But that doesn't it isn't a speaking to the quality of our system. It's just our philosophy. We want broad scalability. We want people to have access to it. We don't want to just go in the in the highest income segment of a market. We want actually to gravitate toward more marginalized populations and underserved areas because we that, that's where a lot of the severe hypertension is paradoxically. So that's the second way we make money. And then the lastly, very quickly, the third way is through research. So people will use our platforms to collect research data and we're academics. So we've got you know, 20 years of experience in that field. So we've made it in a way that we can push data to these researchers and that's one other way. So research grants, um, and that's another way why we generate revenue. 
So I really love that uh, last point around clinical studies. I'm also just curious, Peter, on that point of put to, you know a large cohort of the people that follow um, us and our show are in the pharmaceutical industry. And one of those opportunities is partnerships for clinical trials. So where does this dashboard fit into real world evidence trials, patient registries, other things that you know, companies are being, you know, are, are gravitating towards only because again, COVID-19 and a lot of things are going remote, but also the intention around market access and a lot of what we're calling, um, uh, you know, different types of risk sharing agreements that are happening based on real data and needing to get these kinds of dashboards and real time evidence. Are you partnering or considering partnering with pharmaceutical uh, companies on these clinical studies? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so we've had a little bit of interest from pharmaceutical companies um, to use our products. So the benefit being that we bring in uh, data from a variety of different uh, devices and we summarize that for them, but we also can um, automate the process of data delivery so we can create channels in the back end. So not only do they have a visualization platform for them to interact with during the trial, but intermittently throughout um, the study, they can also access the raw data and perform ongoing statistical analysis. So we do provide that tool. Um, as Raj mentioned, we've mostly been sought after by the academic institutions, uh, maybe because of our academic backgrounds. Um, that's just sort of the people who know. We don't do a lot of advertising. We get a lot of word of mouth interest. Um, and so I guess we haven't had direct um, interaction with the pharmaceutical companies, but we believe that our, our solution would be um, very aptly um, suited for their needs. Uh, and so we would definitely welcome those sort of interactions. Speaking about pharmaceutical companies and other potential applications, Raj, one that comes to mind that a lot of companies are also indulging, probably most for their products, are really what they're calling patient support programs. Patient support programs come into play for everything from navigation of how to uh, you know, uh, access the product, to how to get it paid for, to get samples, and then continuous adherence reminders, et cetera. I'm just curious if there's an opportunity for partnership with pharma companies um, to do these continuous monitoring of patient reported outcomes, leveraging a dashboard like yours to uh, create uh, a data flow, if you will, to, to filter into the system so that they can capture this and to accelerate uh, any other information they're, they're retrieving for, um, for their, their real world studies. I'm just curious if that's another opportunity. Um, yeah, so I, I think it, it definitely is. Um, you know, I think, so we've white, it's not quite a white label. We're customizing software for a company that is in the mental health space. Um, uh, right now, a, Can a Canadian company that I think is going to grow substantially over the next uh, several years. Um, and, and that's an example of, of what you speak to. I think our core platform, Vitals, emphasis on blood pressure, weight, and glucose, it resonates in certain markets because of those characteristics. I think what you're asking about, though, would require further customization but there aren't a lot of companies that do that kind of customization with a clinical lens behind it. And if they do, I think you would probably have to pay scads of money for it. 
So it's not that we, you know, I mean, it's not that our services are free, of course, but I think when you have the pairing of the clinical background plus the great uh, development team that we have, um, then you're going to get a superior product. But what you are asking about or uh, referring to, I think, would require more customization. But that's our third business unit is custom medical software for different kinds of entities, whether they are uh, existing businesses or whether they are academic researchers or governments or NGOs, et cetera. Um, Peter, the world is moving towards outcomes-based agreements where insurance companies are paying for medications and risk sharing, if you will, with uh, innovative companies that are discovering new medicines. So um, we're getting away from these very complex, very expensive, rare disease and oncology products and, and insurers are saying, we're going to risk share. And if you do what you say you're going to do, we're going to pay for it. But the question comes down to is how do we determine if the drug did what did what it's supposed to do? So a dashboard like yours that focuses very specifically on pulse oximetry, respiratory rate, you know, blood pressure, et cetera. I'm curious as well, and this is kind of a little bit going more into the future, but definitely speaks to customized software development. Is this whole thing, I know we talk a lot around um, autonomous um, social contracts or, uh, you know, we're hearing a lot about these sort of non-fungible tokens or tokenizing data. The, the bottom line is being able to tokenize data that comes from these patient reported systems into a system that, uh, you know, uh, in a contract, if you will, um, and it sort of registers itself and, and lets an insurance company know that somebody you know, move in a forward direction with their health outcome. And then a payment is actually made without any sort of third party involved. Is this something that's part of the milieu ecosystem, long-term planning um, as we sort of move into this world of, of, of blockchain and cryptocurrencies and all these other things? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very interesting and pertinent question because we're actually in the process of experimenting with our first um, crypto wallet so uh, absolutely, that's where things are heading. Um, you know, it comes down to not only, you know, the relationship between pharma and uh, insurance and, and, and all those bigger companies, but also what the patient can, what part the patient can play in controlling how their data is being used um, to support and, and to interact with these, what these companies want to do. And, you know, traditionally, data is sort of owned by the collectors and, and sold off, uh, you know, huge uh, profit margins. And the patient is kind of um, left out of that equation. And that's one of the things that we want to do, you know, as part of our ethos and philosophy at Millimeters Mercury is to really include the patient in that equation and have them control if they want their data to be used. And if so, you know, how they can be rewarded for being part of the clinical trials and, and insurance process. So I think um, that's absolutely the future. I think uh, the blockchain and crypto, um, you know, tokenization of data, rewards, all that sort of thing is really just in its infancy. And this is going to be the, the way of the future. And we're absolutely um, hoping to be uh, on the vanguard of that. I absolutely love that you're even thinking about that. I sometimes throw these zingers in because I'm a real digital geek and I just sometimes I get a lot of blank eyes 
But I love the fact that you even, first of all, understand it. And secondly, we're even considering it. I personally think that this could potentially be the new universal basic income. Basically, you know, biometrics just ambiently and seamlessly moving from the things that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis and people make a generalized income from it. So I think that's super brilliant. We have heard recently in Canada, uh, Raj, obviously the horrendous things that have been happening in long-term care facilities, uh, you know, certainly in Ontario, but amidst other provinces, and I'm sure globally as well. And I'm just kind of curious about potential partnerships, um, white label software specifically for long-term care facilities, especially for people like caregivers who may want to monitor their loved ones and are not necessarily able to be there on a regular and day-to-day -day basis. Where does where does your, um, your, your platform fit into that equation? Yeah, it's like you attended all of our meetings last week. Um, <laughs> it's uncanny. Uh, we'll have to sweep the rooms for bugs. But uh, so, so right now we're, we're very much focused on an individual use case, individual user use case for monitoring, because that's really where our platform has resonated mostly in the US market, as well as for individual researchers and entities that we've partnered with. However, we just had a meeting last week uh, with a partner in Hong Kong, and we want to move forward with developing a multi-user platforms because the use case there is um, a nurse or uh, probably a nurse or a community health worker going from room to room and measuring the vitals, but having them automatically be collected. Uh, but right now we're not set up to have a multi-user interface, but uh, it's not a huge amount of development to do that. And I think that that would be probably the most desirable thing for long-term care, nursing, home type stuff or assisted living. Um, we're very interested in that market. It's not a market we've been in uh, right now. Uh, we're fairly small, growing fast and have had to choose our, our foci. But I think it's definitely a space that we're very interested in moving into and with some of the partnerships that we are uh, engaging with in the, in the last month, we're actually moving in that direction pretty rapidly. So um, if there are any viewers in that space, you know, it's hard to cold call people, but we'd be very interested in talking with people about their needs because like I say, the bottom line is in terms of one of the biggest differentiators is the, is the really the low cost. If you want to do this with existing home health monitoring, I mean, good luck. You know, it's a thousand bucks a patient plus. And how is that sustainable? It's not. But if you go to a smartphone based system that's cloud based, then it immediately the economics start to make sense. It really does. Absolutely. We are just kind of sort of moving forward about the other potential uses of, you know, we've talked about hypertension, cardiovascular, meta, cardiometabolic, all of those things that revolve around that, and certainly a lot of chronic disease management. Projecting forward into this world of wellness care, as opposed to the traditional sickness reactive care that we have created an entire infrastructure in our legacy healthcare system. And so if we project forward, and I know that you feel very strongly, uh, Raj and Peter, around empowering and really moving into the patient-centricity mode, curious as to how um, patients can get involved at, in a greater degree with the use of these kinds of tools and what is 
in it, if you will, for them to proactively work. So for example, you were talking about your philosophy um, going beyond the typical higher social economic status, which we typically see of being the Apple Watch users or people who have all the bells and whistles or the aura ring or the people who are considered biohackers. So going back to sort of the basics and maybe moving into countries that you were saying underserved, um, you know, underrepresented populations. So with all of that said, how can they leverage or access care? Are you starting to think about robotics, chatbots, um, leveraging that population health management tool set and bringing it back to people in, in bite-sized digestible pieces that are understandable in their language in a way that's kind of fun and feels ethical and also feels um, scientific. What's some of the thinking, and hopefully this wasn't something else that you talked about at your meeting last week, because then it's gonna be really scary, but um, what's your thoughts on that, Peter? Yeah, I think Raj can probably answer this question a little bit better than I can, but I'll give it a go. I mean, so really <clears throat> part of the digital therapeutics play that and, and work that we wanna do in the future is to, um, you know, it's all going to be patient focused. So it's all about, you know, the patient controlling their care, controlling their lifestyle, um, controlling how healthy want, they want to be and us being able to support them with that. So digital therapeutics isn't just about treating the patient. It's, ma it's, it's making them learn as much as possible as they can about their current health status and then providing them with inputs to be able to improve that. And the good thing about the way that it works with our platform is that we already have the base foundation of, of, the, of the setup there. So they can collect the data and then we layer these sort of applications on top to help them sort through the data, understand it and learn how to better uh, manage themselves for uh, long-term you know, out, outcomes. Raj, you might have a better no, I mean, I think that was great, Peter. I think, uh, you know, what we're speaking about is the DT product and the DT product has to be done in a way that it's approachable to patients and not just, um, you know, a certain segment of a population on earth, but, you know, hopefully lots of different segments and that's going to be a challenge and that's going to be a lot of work for us. Um, we're actually already four languages and we want to expand the number of languages that we have in our platform. Uh, for, for partly for that reason. And even the First Nations work, we had a meeting yet last week and we talked about cultural, uh, um, so just the cultural opinions um, or usefulness, uh, uh, acceptability of the system. And I think we've got some work uh, on that end as well. So we wanna refine all these things and push them through. I think the two quick answers to the question are one DT, make digital therapeutics in a way that is approachable and usable by patients. And then two blockchain. And if you can imagine someone sitting in Africa who doesn't have any access to any provider, but could in theory access a physician in Canada, um, you know, if they needed to through through a blockchain based type uh, approach. And you know, the one thing that I don't know if regulators will crack down on, but the one great thing about the blockchain right now is there's no forex. I mean. If you do, you do blockchain-based stuff, you can, do, you can communicate and do stuff anywhere to anyone in the world, and you don't have to worry about getting the, all these different intermediaries involved, and everyone's taking a uh, yeah, got, then have, has their hand in the cookie jar. So I don't know how it's going to roll out. It's still really early, as Peter said, but our vision is to have someone sitting in one part of the world that can either do things themselves to the greatest extent possible and not have to spend any money, 
But if they then do have to spend money, they can select a provider somewhere in the world that they're most comfortable with and at the price point that they that they want to pay. And so hopefully that's something that can come to fruition. I absolutely love it. And, and good for um, millimeters mercury for having the courage to really think big and to think broad. I think this is clearly a differentiator and exciting area. And I especially love the philosophy of reaching out to a lot of the underserved and uh, and uh, you know populations that are not being actively or as actively managed. So brilliant and wonderful. And I think what you were talking about blockchain and just, it is a world of the cowboys. It's probably very similar to Elon Musk navigating, you know, the first navigators and explorers of Mars or anybody who's going to Antarctica for the first time. It's a scary place. So bravo to the courageous explorers out there who are looking at doing that. So um, love this. For anybody who's listening, um, I certainly think there's a lot of legs behind this. If you're interested in contacting Peter or Dr. Padwell, um, any of the ideas around what you're doing with your programs, patient support programs, clinical studies, looking at potentially leveraging this for uh, a patent, uh, you know, expiry and doing something to leverage for your medications or doing other things, we'll be leaving their connection or their contact information in the notes below. So please check that out. We also encourage you, if you enjoyed this conversation, to check out impetusdigital.com. Um, we can have these kinds of conversations. If you're looking at networking and connecting with companies like Millimeters Mercury, how do you move the needle on your programs, policies, procedures, coming up with new ideas, really pushing beyond just the pill? Um, these are the kinds of things we can do asynchronously and synchronously with a variety of healthcare stakeholders so that you can move the needle on what it is that you're trying to do. So check out, that out. We'd really appreciate if you can like and subscribe to our channel and especially would be appreciative if you could leave a review on, um, on our podcast so other people can find this information. We want to thank all of you for your time today, especially to you, Dr. Raj Padwell and Peter Wood. And thank you. Um, appreciate. I hope everybody has a wonderful day in advance. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business-to-business -business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide, all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more. And visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.